Hello, my dear friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, and this is the Parsha Podcast. And unlike most weeks where I am coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, this week I am actually coming to you from Muncie, New York, in the Northeast. As many of you all know, every summer we go visit my parents who live in New York, and actually we drive across the country 25 or so hours and we left on Sunday, and all of Sunday, and all of Monday, and all of Tuesday, and late Tuesday night, we arrived over here, and we're visiting family, and that's one of my excuses for being so late on this week's Parsha podcast. I am recording it now. It is a little bit after midnight, early Friday morning. I apologize for being late. Last week, I was late. This week, I'm being I'm, I'm late. Please, God, next week will be a little bit earlier as we try and we strive really, really hard here on the Parsha Podcast to get the Parsha Podcast out towards the end of the week, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. Today is actually a momentous day in the annals of our family's history because I sent off my son, Ativa, whom y'all should remember was recently bar mitzvah a couple of months ago. We sent him to summer camp here in the Catskills. And he's going to sleepaway camp, and he's the first one in our family to go, and I feel like I'm experiencing summer camp vicariously through him. I drove him up to the Catstails, dropped him off. We have no way of being in communication, and we hope and wish that he has a wonderful experience in this camp this summer. Okay, let's get to the Parsha. Parsha's Balak. And this is perhaps the most unusual Parsha in the Torah, because almost the entirety of the Parsha is told to us from the point of view of the non-Jews, of the idolaters, of the evil schemers, namely Balak and his hired hitman, Bilam, who are trying to curse the Jewish people. And every year I kind of wonder about this Parsha. You know, the whole story seems a bit superfluous. You would imagine if we weren't told this whole story, what would we be missing? If the Torah just said, hey, there was an attempt at genocide here. Bilaam tried to destroy the Jewish people and he failed. It seems like that would be sufficient. But no, for some reason, we get into the innards of this story and we follow this character blow by blow in his story, how he is commissioned by Bala to go curse the Jewish people, and God says, don't go, and then God ultimately says to him, okay, you could go, but bless them, and this Bilaam character is such an unusual personality, he's a prophet of the idolaters on par with Moshe, and he tries to do this genocide to curse the Jewish people and destroy them, and he tries three times and he fails, and ultimately he goes back to his home in disgrace. And this whole story seems like it's superfluous. During the Passover Haggadah, we say that in every generation, there are people, there are forces, there are movements to try to destroy us, and they always fail. There's something special about Bilaam's attempt at genocide, that there is this departure from the Torah's narrative, from following the story and the vantage point and the perspective of the Jewish people. We spend the whole Parsha, essentially, following the story of Bilam and his attempt to try to curse the Jewish people. So I want to suggest maybe an approach that tries to illuminate this story for us and maybe draws some valuable lessons for us. So we have this Bilam character. He's the prophet of the idolaters to a certain extent. 
His prophecy is that great. It's on par with the prophecy of Moshe. He's very talented. He is very gifted. But unfortunately, he is using all of his skills for evil and for selfish aims. In fact, our sages tell us that he is purported to be someone who knows how to curse and how to bless. But in truth, he only knew how to curse. He could pinpoint the precise moment of the day where the Almighty, so to speak, is angry and thus is susceptible to curses, so to speak, or to allow curses to go through. But Bilaam did not know how to bless. But because he was a prophet and he had clairvoyance, he was prescient. He knew when someone would get a promotion and he would go over to that person and say, oh, I want to give you a blessing. You are going to be promoted. You are going to be elevated. You, Balak, are going to be made king. Now, the truth is, Balak became king, but it had nothing to do with the blessing, quote-unquote, of Bilaam. Bilaam didn't effectuate that at all. He just knew the future, and therefore he made believe that he brought about the future. And therefore, when Balak was made king, he's like, wait a minute, Bilaam just told me that I'm going to become king. He gave me the blessing, and it's the merit of Bilaam's blessing that I became king. So this is an example of Bilaam's corrupted character that he is taking credit for all the things that he quote-unquote did when he really did not do them. And he has a rapacious avarice. He wants a house full of gold and silver as payment for his services. And it bothers him when others succeed. And he's haughty and aloof and full of arrogance. And he is persistent in going to curse the Jewish people. God says, don't go. And he insists, let's try again. And he goes against the wishes of God. And an angel of mercy tries to stop him. And his own donkey tells him it's a bad idea. And he goes nonetheless. And he fruitlessly tries three times to curse the Jewish people. And each time he is forced to bless them. And he gives a sweeping fourth blessing. And the story ends with him giving advice to Balak. Balak, you are the king of Moab. You're worried about the Jewish people. I will tell you what their weakness is. I will reveal to you their vulnerability. And that is the God of these people hates promiscuity. If you could find a way to get the Jewish men to act promiscuously, you will be able to weaken them. And indeed, the daughters of Moab prostitute themselves and lead the Jewish men astray. And the Jewish men sin sexually and also in committing idolatry. And a plague sweeps through the nation, killing 24,000 of its people. And the climax of the Parsha is when the people of the tribe of Shimon primarily are fornicating with the Moabite daughters and committing adultery. And Moshe rallies his lieutenants to go round up the idolaters, and they begin to execute the perpetrators. And then there is a man, the leader of the tribe of Shimon, who is spurred to action. And Rashi, based upon the Talmud, tells us that Moshe, together with the other judges, were executing the people who were committing idolatry. And this idolatry came in concert with the prostitution, with the promiscuity, with the daughters of Moab. So the people of the tribe of Shimon, who were the primary perpetrators in this sin, they run to their leader 
a gentleman by the name of Zimri, also called Shlumiel. And they said to him, I don't get it. Your people are being killed and you're doing nothing? So what does he do? He runs over and grabs a princess and says to her, come sleep with me. And then he grabs her by her hair and brings her to Moshe and tells Moshe, is this woman permitted or forbidden? And if she's forbidden, well, the daughter of Yisro, who also comes from a non-Jewish family, how are you allowed to marry her? And indeed, in a very public fashion, this leader of the tribe of Shimon begins to copulate with this princess. And amidst this entire chaotic scene, Pinchas, the grandson of Aaron, gets up and grabs a spear and removes the blade of the spear, the Talmud tells us, and he hid the blade in his garments and he disguised the rest of the spear as a walking stick. And he starts walking towards the place where this head of the tribe of Shimon is behaving in a very immoral fashion with this princess. And he gets there and he says, hey, I'm from the tribe of Levi. Why are you guys having all the fun? Let me join in the party. He makes believe that he wants to do the same thing. He wants to participate in the sin. So they allow him to enter. And when he enters, he reattaches the spear to his quote-unquote walking stick and he plunges the spear into these two people, the head of the tribe of Shimon and this princess that he is with in a very public fashion. And the Talmud tells us that there were all kinds of miracles that happened to him in this episode. And then he walks out of the tent and he has skewered to his spear these two people and he makes a petition to God, hey, there's a plague here and people are dying. There's 24,000 people are dying. Stop the plague. Look, I made a move here. Indeed, the Almighty stopped the plague. A very dramatic and very perplexing episode to end the Parsha. And the Parsha ends really in the middle of the story because next week's Parsha is Parsha Spinchas, which tells us the aftermath of this story. So again, what do we have over here? We have Bilam. He is trying to destroy the nation. And he tries with his curses and that's unsuccessful. And he tells the head of Moab, he tells Balak, he says, hey, I'll give you a different solution. Follow my advice. Get your daughters, the daughters of the Moabites, to all prostitute themselves. And then they'll get the Jews to do all kinds of sins. And then the Almighty hates that and he'll destroy them. And indeed it works. And then you have the tribe of Shimon primarily participating in this behavior. And you have the leader of the tribe doing the same. And the Talmud indicates that the reason why he was doing it was to try to exonerate his constituents. So he had a rationale for why he was doing it. He thought that if he would do it, well, maybe that would provide some exculpation for the rest of his constituents. And Pinchas comes up and he rises up in a zealous fashion and he remembers this law that someone who acts like this head of the tribe in a very public fashion can be killed by the zealous and he doesn't wait for anybody and he takes the spear, disguises it and executes the perpetrator. Very strange and very interesting story. But if you look at the legacy of Bilaam, he is dead set on trying to curse the Jewish people. 
He's hired for that. He does it even though there are all kinds of forces trying to stop him from doing that. And he tries to curse the Jewish people and he's unable to harm the nation with his curses. But his advice indeed is taken and that levies a huge blow to the people. They have this horrific sin with the daughters of Moab. 24,000 people are dying and it's only stopped. The plague is only stopped due to the heroics of Pinchas. Let us study the character of Bilaam a little bit deeper. The first time Bilaam makes an appearance in the Torah and the text of Scripture is our Parsha. However, the earliest thing we know about Bilaam from the Midrash and from the Talmud goes back to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 is the Jewish people are in Egypt and they start off as a family, the tribe of 12 sons of Jacob, 70 souls that descend to Egypt, and the nation is burgeoning. The nation is growing. And Pharaoh is worried. We have this demographic bomb, the Jewish people taking over, and they're procreating and proliferating in such grand numbers that he convenes his inner circle to discuss the matter. So verse 9 of chapter 1 Pharaoh tries to rile up the nation, and he says, let us deal shrewdly with them, and let's try to find a way to suppress their growth. Otherwise, in the event of a war, they're going to join our enemies, and will fight against us, and they will leave from the land. So indeed, they appointed taskmasters and tax collectors, and they tormented them, and they enslaved them, and they forced them to build for Pharaoh the cities of Pisom and Ramses. Ramses. So this is part of Pharaoh's clever and shrewd plot to try to stunt the growth of the Jewish people. And our sages tell us that it was actually a multi-part plot. There were confiscatory taxes that were levied upon the Jewish people. And later on, we read that Pharaoh had the midwives try to commit infanticide. He would get the Jewish midwives to kill the Jewish boys when they're born. And then the babies were thrown into the water. And eventually, they were entirely enslaved. And the way that worked was also quite insidious. Pharaoh enslaved them not directly all at once. Rather, he exploited their patriotism. He said, hey, you're a proud Egyptian. Don't you want to help build our economy? Don't you want to help build great cities and work on the infrastructure of the land? And even Pharaoh himself was working. And then we got paid a stipend. And there was this national effort, if you will, to rebuild Egypt. The Jewish people joined, or some of them did. Besides for the tribe of Levi, the Jewish people joined. And then eventually, the work intensified, and the Egyptians stopped working, and the Jewish people were no longer paid, And before you know it, they were subjected to the worst enslavement ever. And this was the master plan of Exodus chapter 1. It's a total comprehensive plan to subjugate and depress and weaken the Jewish nation. And the Talmud tells us that who came up with this plan? Who was part of Pharaoh's inner circle, the cabinet, if you will, that met to figure out what to do with the quote-unquote Jewish problem. Says the Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, page 106a, there were three members of this council. Number one, Bilam. 
And he actually gave the advice of, he gave the idea to do this. And there was Job. Job was also part of this tribunal, this council. And finally, there was Jethro. And Bilaam, he was the one who gave the advice. And as a result of that, because he actually came up with the idea, in, in the end, he was killed. And Job was silent. He didn't give a vote, not in this direction and not in that direction. And as a result of that, he was condemned to great suffering. And Jethro, he ran away. He said, I refuse to partake in this tribunal, in this council. And he escaped and went to Midian. And as a result of that, because of his merit, because of his righteousness in not joining this plot, his descendants sat in the marble chamber. They were part of the Sanhedrin. They integrated amongst the Jewish people. They converted. His son-in-law was Moshe, and his descendants were very righteous sages who led the nation. So isn't this interesting? Pharaoh had a bunch of advisors, the creme de la creme, the best counselors in the land of Egypt. And one of them is Bilaam, one of the worst villains of our history. Someone who was pathological in his hatred for our people. And the Talmud says that again, he knew how to pinpoint the precise moment of the day when God was angry, where there was an opportune time to curse the people. And the Talmud tells us that over the course of the entire Bilam saga, God did not get angry for that second of the day, and thereby he spared the nation. Had God acted as usual, so to speak, whatever this means, there would be nothing left of our people. Bilam was committed to completely destroying the Jewish people. And this monster, Bilam, was a colleague of Jethro, the father of Moshe. But these two people took very opposite paths in life. Bilam retained his pathological hatred of the Jewish people. He never stopped working on his master plan, his final solution for the Jewish problem, and to a large extent was actually successful at severely crippling our people. He gave the advice of prostituting the Moabite girls. Jethro, on the other hand, he became the father of Moshe. He became a righteous convert. His descendants became members of the Sanhedrin. They were amongst the most righteous sages of our people. And they started off at the very same table, working for Pharaoh to try to solve the Jewish problem. How did these two people's paths diverge so sharply? Now, to make matters more interesting... These two people, these two former colleagues, Jethro and Bilam, their paths cross again in our Parsha. As you mentioned earlier, Bilam gave three blessings. He wanted to give curses, but he gave three blessings to the Jewish people. And then he gave a fourth unsolicited blessing. And in that blessing, he speaks about other nations as well, not just the Jewish people. He speaks about Edom and Seir and Amalek. And then in chapter 24, verse 21, it says, Vayar es hakeni. He saw the Kani, he saw the Canaanites, and he started speaking about them. And he said, Their abode is really strong. It's a tan, it's strong. And their nest is amongst the rocks, amongst the cliffs. So, what's going on over here? What is Bilam 
saying, who are these Canaanites? So Rashi tells us that the nation, the Canaanite nation, was adjacent to Amalek. And the Canaanites is a reference to Jethro. And what Bilaam was foretelling is the greatness of the descendants of Jethro, that they became members of the Sanhedrin. And then he said, I am so surprised how you merited this. After all, you and I were part of the same council of Pharaoh of Exodus chapter 1. We were together on the bench, and somehow I'm here, and look what kind of a bright future you have. Our question, how is it possible Bilaam and Jethro start off at the same place and end up in a very, very different place? Bilaam himself asks the question. Again, it's featured in Rashi in that aforementioned verse. At one point, these two people were on par with each other. They were part of this triumvirate, this group of three advisors that partook in the council discussion what to do with the Jewish people. And Bilaam, like us, is surprised at how divergent their paths were. We started off at the same point, and now we are totally opposite. And the commentaries point out, when they talk about this verse, that Eitan, the description of the of the security of the Canaanites, is actually the nickname of Abraham. And this is indicating that Jethro is so righteous that he has something in common with Abraham. Abraham was the first righteous convert, and therefore Jethro, who's also a righteous convert, is part of the Abrahamic fraternity. And the next part of the verse is a reference to Moshe. So we have a very impressive resume here for Jethro. He's associated with Abraham and with Moshe and his descendants, a part of the Sanhedrin. And here he is being examined by his former colleague, who is a total lowlife, who is a terrible criminal, who's trying to hatch plots to destroy the entire nation, and still many, many years after the original attempt, is still steaming to destroy the people. And our question of how these two people ended up in such different places bothered Bilaam too. And Bilaam doesn't really give us an answer. What indeed is the answer? How is it possible that Jethro became so righteous, whereas Bilaam, his former colleague, remained such a terrible scoundrel? So I want to suggest an idea. These two people, if you examine their storylines, you discover that they have very unique characteristics in common. So first of all, they're both master planners. Pharaoh had an immense problem with the Jewish people and their burgeoning demographics, and he called in the best of the best to solve this very large problem. And he calls in amongst the group of three, you have Bilaam and Jethro. Both are visionaries who are capable of coming up with solutions to large, complicated problems. That's when they were in service of Pharaoh. And now they have their new life. And they're both still capable of finding solutions to large, insoluble problems. Bilaam is given a very big problem. We have the greatest juggernaut the world has ever seen. This nation 
is leaving Egypt and there's all these miracles and they're sweeping away everyone in their midst and they utterly destroyed the region's superpowers without a single casualties. And Bilaam is given the job to try to stop them. And Bilaam is able to size up this problem and the old master planner comes up and discovers their kryptonite. Their God hates promiscuity. And he gets them into sin in a variety of ways. And indeed, he's able to remove a sizable chunk of the nation. 24,000 people die. Bilaam is still the steamer. He still has the bit solutions for bit problems. But again, it started off Exodus 1 with genocide. And here, Numbers 22, 23, 24, it's still genocide. It's the same brilliant mind working on these awful solutions. Now, Jethro was on that same council. He, too, had the ability to solve big problems. But he makes a decision to run away. What does he do with his unique skill of dealing with complicated systems and trying to find solutions? He uses it for good! He arrives at the camp... And he sees a problem, and it's an immense problem. The whole nation's in turmoil. And he devises this hierarchical system, and he divides the nation into leaders of 10, and leaders of 50, and leaders of 100, and leaders of 1,000, and only the most difficult questions come to Moshe. He is using the exact same skill of dealing with tremendous systems and difficult, intractable problems, but he's using it to organize the nation, to make the nation more efficient, to free Moshe to do more important things than answer simple questions. Bilaam and Jethro were both endowed with this very unusual skill, and one of them, Bilaam, is insisting on using the skill for genocidal purposes. And Jethro says, I'm interested in that. And he runs away, and he dedicates it for good. Now, there's a second unusual quality that both of these people had. They both were endowed with extreme persistence, perseverance, tenacity. Bilaam is very persistent. Again and again and again, he's discouraged and dissuaded, don't go. But he persists nonetheless. And he displays, again, uncommon tenacity to pursue his mission. God says, don't go. He tries to go again. God says, you can't trust him. He's going to try nonetheless. God says, go, but hearken to what I say. And Bilaam still thinks he can find a way to curse them. And the angel tries to stop him multiple times. And the donkey tries to stop him. And his first and second and third curses fail. And he doesn't give up. Bilaam is persistent and tenacious to do terrible, awful things. And at the end, he actually succeeds. He gives the advice that the Moabite women should prostitute themselves. And indeed, he succeeds in taking out a sizable contingent of the nation. Jethro is also unusually persistent. And the verse tells us in chapter 18 of Exodus, when he meets Moshe after the Exodus, and Moshe regales him with the stories of the Exodus, and Bilaam says a line, and I know we've talked about this in the past. Atayadati, now I know that the Almighty is the true power. 
And Rashi tells us something astonishing. Jethro experimented with every single idol in the world. And now he knows the truth. He knows there's no power like the Almighty. Just like Bilam for the bad. Jethro is displaying this unusual, uncommon persistence, a dogged pursuit of truth. And eventually he finds it. He doesn't just give up after trying out a hundred idols. He tries them all until he discovers the truth. Bilam and Jethro were similar. Perhaps they had similar skills and abilities and qualities. And one is a great hero and his descendants are part of the Sanhedrin and he has this great legacy. And one is a genocidal maniac. And their skills remained constant from the beginning to the end. And Jethro used them for very noble causes, whereas Bilam used them for very nefarious and evil ones. I think there's something very deep going on over here. I like to call this the life choice free will. You know, we think of free will as something that's in the realm of decisions. Should I do this or should I do that? Should I choose this? Should I choose that? Should I listen to my Yitzhahara or should I resist the Yitzhahara? There's a very deep teaching in the Talmud that reveals that there's actually a much deeper, more comprehensive area of free will. And that is the choice of how you are going to deploy your God-given and unique abilities. The Talmud tells us that there are people who are born under certain influences, meaning that they, from the beginning of their lives, they are affected, they are influenced by certain tendencies. And the way the Talmud describes it is someone who is born under the influence of Mars, whatever astrological significance that that has, that person will be someone who spills blood. That person will be a little bit bloodthirsty. However, says the Talmud, there's a lot of career options that he still has. He could be a physician. He could be a thief. He could be a slaughterer. Or he could be a circumciser. There's the entire gamut of being righteous to being very wicked. You could do a bris milah, which is the greatest mitzvah, one of the greatest mitzvahs out there. You could be a murderer and a thief, and in both cases, you're a bloodletter. Both cases, you're a bloodshedder. There are some things about our personality, about our qualities, about our natural inborn tendencies that are fixed. They are inherent. They are inflexible. They're unchangeable. You know, if you're lucky enough to have a child or even two children, you see that, especially when you have two kids, invariably they're very different. And that's because the Almighty makes everyone different. We talk about this all the time. The Almighty makes every individual different. Some kids, they're just calm and, and easy and just very peace, peaceful and, and quiet. I always joke with a friend of mine, all of his kids are just perfectly well-behaved. So I say, your house is just such a ruckus. It's so loud because everyone just, there's just this crazy crescendo, this crazy cacophony of sound in your, in your house because everyone's moving the pages of their books. You know, that's the joke I always tell them. It's just so loud. 
Everyone just sits down. They sit down on the couch and they're happy and they don't fight. And they're just flipping the pages of the book. They just naturally are more calm. And then you have my kids. <laughs> and to try to get them to sit down, it's insane. Try to drive across the country with these kids. They have energy and they have passion and they're fierce and they want to scream and they want to jump. Good luck trying to get that kid to sit docilely and just read. You know, I haven't seen my kids love to read. But the point is still true. Every child, already as a child, has a certain temperament, has a certain tendency, and those things are unchangeable. Now, Talmud tells us, if you are born under the influence of Mars, whatever that means, you are going to be bloodthirsty. Mars is red, you're going to want red, you're going to want blood. That part is fixed. But what you do with that, that is your life choice free will. It's not a free will decision of a deed, an action, something isolated, something discreet. It's a life choice. What do you want to do with your life? You have this tendency. You're going to want to do something in this nature, in this arena of behavior. But it could be a mitzvah. It could be a huge mitzvah. It could be neutral. You could be a butcher. Nothing with being a butcher. It's a nice, hopefully honest way to make a living. Or you could be a murderer. And all three people are drawing blood, are hacking away at meat, are hacking away at flesh. All three of them can be a fulfillment of your Mars tendency, whatever that is. But what you do with that is your choice. Bilam and Jethro both were extremely talented, but they chose different paths in how to deploy their extraordinary talents. You know, perhaps we can even speculate. Jethro, he had to escape. He, when he was part of this council, he was really part of this team. And they're convening. Why are they getting together? To solve the Jewish question. And he made this decision to run away. He was already mired in this very bad place. And he had to make a dramatic change. And it makes you kind of wonder, this is the counterfactual. There is a version of reality in which Bilam had followed suit. You could imagine a counterfactual world wherein Bilam pulled off a Jethro and became a righteous person and used all those tremendous, prodigious abilities for good. Imagine what would have become of him. But unfortunately, he started off with genocide. He never escaped that. He maintained that desire. He was persistent. He used his tremendous ability to be persistent and be tenacious. And just plunge and plow ahead and stop for nothing and take, never take no for an answer and be able to try to look at a big problem, come, come up with a specific solution. And he used all that for terrible ends. And Jethro had the identical still set as one of the great heroes of our nation. I think, you know, at the end of the parsha, we have again this idea. We have the tribe of Shimon committing a very severe sin. And the leader, what does he do? He grabs this princess and grabs her by her hair and brings her to Moshe. Is this woman permitted or forbidden? Well, if she's prohibited, who allowed you to marry the daughter of Jethro? This is obviously what we would call chutzpah. Could you imagine the gall of this person to challenge Moshe like that? 
where does that recalcitrance, refusal to submit to authority, where does that come from? And the answer is obvious. This is the tribe of Shimon. And Shimon, together with his brother Levi, they slaughtered an entire city of Shechem. They had a certain fierceness and defiance and recalcitrance to authority, and they refused to listen to Jacob or to consult Jacob. To them, they wanted to do it. doesn't matter that Jacob is there. They didn't consult him. They acted alone. They were independent. They were fearless. And they destroyed the entire city. And here, the head of that same tribe is once again displaying the same fearlessness and defiance to Moshe. Nothing's changed. But in fact, a lot has changed. Look at Shimon's sidekick, his co-conspirator. Look at Levi, look at Levi. Levi, if you examine his story, the tribe of Levi, they always maintain that same ferocity and defiance and recalcitrance, but for good. When Pharaoh wanted to get all the Jews to work, Levi, in the tribe of Levi, displayed defiance and fearlessness of Pharaoh and said, we're not working for you. And then when it was a little bit dangerous to circumcise the children, Levi displayed defiance and fearlessness and refused to capitulate to this fear of circumcision. And they circumcised their boys both in the wilderness and in Egypt. And in our Parsha, to top it off, we have the scion of the tribe of Levi, Pinchas, And he displays the same zealous defiance and fearlessness for good in defending God's honor, even when it was quite dangerous. As is true with Bilam and Jethro, with Shimon versus Levi, their characteristics were not altered a bit. Just as Bilam stayed the same and Jethro stayed the same, their characteristics inherently were the same. But Jethro showed us a good version of what that looked like. And Shimon stayed the same. And Levi showed us a righteous version of those exact characteristics. Our skills and qualities and inclinations can never be an excuse. As the title of this podcast suggests, some men are from Mars. Some men are going to have a certain tendency to be blood spillers, but you could use that for the greatest mitzvah possible. And regardless of what your particular assortment, what your particular repertoire of specific qualities and attributes that you are given, there is a version of that that's exceedingly righteous and good, and even the murderer. That quality can be used solely for good. May we all be so fortunate to discover what it is that makes us unique and find the way to take that uniqueness and use it solely for good. Okay, let's get to this week's A and Q. Answers and questions. The highlight of the weekly Parsha podcast. And this is a very difficult question that I stumbled upon this week. I don't have an answer. Sometimes when I ask the Parsha question, the A and Q, I have an answer. This week, I don't have an answer. So maybe my dear friends, my family members, part of the Parsha podcast family will bail me out. They have been 
amazing so far, and maybe that will continue. Okay, let's get to the question. So in our Parsha, we have a discussion at the very beginning of the Parsha. The heads of Moab are really worried about the Jewish people, this juggernaut, and they go speak to the elders of Midian. And Rashi tells us, this is I think the second or third Rashi, the third verse of our Parsha, why did the people of Moab, why did they go seek advice from the leaders of Midian? Now, Moab and Midian is a little confusing. Moab is the people who are threatened. And Midian is the city in which Jethro comes from, where Moshe spent some formative years of his life there. Why they go ask advice from the people of Midian? Because when they saw Israel winning in very unnatural, miraculous fashion, they said, hey, where does the leader of this people come from? Where does Moshe come from? Moshe, after all, he spent the formative years of his life in Midian. Let's go do some field research and let's go get a scouting report. Let's find out what the people of Midian could tell us about Moshe. So they went to Midian and they said, well, what do we know about Moshe? They responded, Moshe's strength, his power is solely in his mouth. His power is verbal. He uses words. That's his superpower. And therefore they said, okay, we know the right guy. We'll hire Bilaam and he'll be the one because he too uses his mouth. That's his superpower. We'll hire him and we'll fight fire with fire. And that's how we will defeat the Jewish people. So the people of Midian said to the people of Moab that the power of Moshe is solely in his mouth. Wait a minute. The power of Moshe was solely in his mouth? Isn't Moshe's speech his weakness? Wasn't that his hamstring? Didn't Moshe try to object to lead the nation? When Moshe was still a Midian, he objected to go save the Jewish people by saying that he has a hard time speaking. He has a speech impediment. Moshe's greatest weakness was his speech. Yet the elders of Midian are saying that Moshe's greatest strength is in his speech. So here's the question. How can Rashi tell us that the elders of Midian declared Moshe's superpower is in his speech when we know that Moshe's greatest weakness, at least at that time when he was in Midian, was in his speech? If you have an answer, send me an email, rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And again, Walby is spelled W-O-L-B-E as in echo. Okay, last who asked the question, there is a plague, there's a bunch of snakes coming and they're attacking the Jewish people and everyone cries out to Moshe and they repent and they pray. And the Moshe says, okay, build a metal snake and that is something that will solve the problem. You're bitten, you look at the snake and you are healed. And the question we ask is, isn't there an easier solution? Get rid of the snakes. So I want to read to you an amazing answer that came from my friend Bruce. And he speculates the following. If God just got rid of the snakes, maybe, or probably, the people would question how it happened. But when they are invested in the solution by looking up, thinking of Hashem and praying for help, and then it happens, the people are more likely to make the connection of what brought about the cure. If snakes are here today and they're gone tomorrow, what are we likely to say? Oh, there was some reason why the snakes came, and now the snakes are gone. Thank God we can move on from that. 
But here, the Jewish people, the reason why the snakes came was because they complained and they displayed a lack of faith. And therefore, the problem that's the real problem is not just the snakes. The problem is the lack of faith. And therefore, if you just eliminate the snakes, you have the same problem. You haven't accomplished your goal. The goal is to get the Jewish people not to kill them with the snakes, but to imbue them with the faith that they lost. And the way to do that is to keep the snakes. And they know the snakes come from God. And the solution, they know for sure, comes from him too. And thank you for listening. Again, I apologize for the late release of this episode. It's now, I'm on the East Coast, so it's 12.49 a.m. I'm going to hustle to my computer to edit this podcast, release it. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. Have an amazing Shabbos. Have a splendid Shabbos. Have a wonderful Shabbos. And you take care. Signing off. This is Rabbi Yaakov Volby. This is the Parsha Podcast. I thank you for listening. And please, God, we will talk again next week.